Welcome to the ESPN Player Gridiron College Football Show. I'm Simon Clancy, along with Matt Sherry. Coming up this week, we'll discuss young passers, bad longhorns, state of Florida meltdowns, and we'll assess the rest of the fallout from week one of the season. Plus, we'll look ahead to week two, and inevitably there'll be a bit of a shuffle at the top of our Heisman board because a lot happened in week one, obviously. So let's get into it. And if you read the college column this week, you'll see we started with the Texas debacle, and it kind of feels like we should start here as well because things have slightly moved on. The background to it, if you missed it, a 34-29 loss by Texas to the un- to unranked Maryland. The second straight year they fall into the Terrapins. Matt, what's happening in what's happening in Austin? I feel like they're almost cursed at the moment. Um, although sympathy is in fairly short supply from me, because essentially they got rid of Charlie Charlie Strong too quickly for my liking, and. I don't like Tom Herman. I think he's very arrogant. And I think the the local media is turning on him basically for this reason. He is very sure of himself and he's very arrogant. He And to be fair, I mean, this is a guy who, when they hired him, was the hottest coach in college football. I mean, he'd been great as Ohio State's offensive coordinator in the national championship run. He'd done a really nice job at Houston for one or two seasons. And it looked a great hire, but... I, I just, he's so arrogant, this guy, and the, there is off-the-field issues now as well in terms of his relationship with Zach Smith, who was involved in the Ohio State case, and reports of him spending $600 at a strip club when he was at Ohio State, and I think that the fact that that information came out kind of shows how he thought of at Ohio State, because they've clearly leaked that on purpose. Say, not, he, not a coincidence that came out, is it? Yeah, absolutely, and I mean... He's had a lot of things to say about Urban Meyer, if I remember, last year and, and about Ohio State. And I, I just think that it's it's a little bit of arrogance catching up with him. And you can see now that the tide's shifting in terms of perception. And, I mean, he's only in year two, but already his, his seat is warming up. I mean, losing to a team who essentially didn't have a head coach is not a good look for all Maryland were were particularly impressive in the game. But, I mean... Man for man, if you look at the two the two rosters that they've got, Texas should be beating Maryland every every week. So it's it's not good enough, and it's a it's a really bad start of the season for the Longhorns. Obviously, Maryland's coach is on administrative leave, like you say. So they had a, a, a stand in, which just makes it worse. There was a, a lengthy weather delay, which kind of helped anybody, but it was the same for both teams. Herman is now eleven and ten. And that's his record in the last 21 games, which is astonishingly bad. And, you know, makes, I'm sure Longhorn fans yearn for the, the, the glory days of the Mac Brown era. The, you mentioned the local media. The Dallas Star-Telegram was just one of the papers that laid into him and uh, across the board from, you know, from Austin to Dallas and, uh, and all points in between. The local media was um, fairly hardcore in its disdain for his coaching methods, his arrogance as you mentioned I just want to read this to you from the Dallas Star Telegram just a little line uh, as part of their editorial no coach in recent memory thrust out his chest strutted smacked that bubble gum scowled and tried to intimidate the masses while acting as if he owned the place without having done a damn thing on this level more than Tommy Boy Herman I mean that is pretty damning isn't it it is, and I mean, you can't you can't go into a program like Texas with that attitude when you haven't proved anything. Because, I mean, these these programs are like mini ecosystems in terms of the way they operate in towns and kind of how important they are to a very lot a lot of powerful and rich people. Let's be honest. I mean, the boosters at these programs are 
are success stories in their own right in the world of business and and it, and it really can rub people up the wrong way and I think we're seeing that. But Nowhere more so than in the state of Texas either. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and, and I mean, Austin's slightly different to the rest of Texas. It's a little bit more liberal and a little bit less Texasy, for want of a better word. Um, but I mean, it still exists. And also, I think Texas in the last few years are a great case study because a lot of people talk about Nick Saban and the critics will say, well, I could win with that Alabama team. Just look at the amount of five-star recruits Texas have, have essentially wasted the careers of in the last five years. It's it's incredible, and it shows the value of, of coaching as well as recruiting at this level. People often hit Nick Saban with the idea that, oh, well, you're just recruiting the best guys every year. They become the best guys because of Nick Saban, and these guys at Texas haven't become the best guys because the coaching hasn't been good enough. For all, I must admit, I do like Charlie Strong, and I think, I think he's a good coach who was in the wrong place at the wrong time. But um, Tom Herman is just... I think he's a guy who needs to just look in the mirror, to be honest, and, and see what, what he really is and maybe assess the way he behaves because he's not getting through to these players and clearly he's rubbing a lot of people up the wrong way in the process. If you're new to college football, and apologies if you're not, but if you are, recruiting is essentially you're bringing in kids from the high school level to help furnish your your roster, your team. And it happens every year. Coaches, assistant coaches go out into communities all around the US and try and essentially hire the best high school athletes to come to, to each school. And, you know, Nick Saban, the reason Alabama are are where they are is mainly because they're coached, A, by Nick Saban, the, arguably the greatest coach in college football history, but B, Saban is as good a recruiter as there is in America. He's, he goes into the living rooms of mums and dads and, and often just mums or often just grandparents and tells the these families why that their kids will not only succeed in football but succeed in life. And that's a key part of college football, isn't it? And if you don't know the, the college football landscape, recruiting is just an enormous part of everything that goes on. And it's happening right now. You know, it, it goes on throughout the season uh, and up to, to National Signing Day, which happens early in the early in the year. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, essentially as well. So a lot of these games this weekend, a, a programme will bring in recruits and have them on the sideline at the games so the kids get to experience that. We spoke last year, Simon, to a couple of guys in high school who were essentially heading to the game that we went to the following week, Alabama, Mississippi State, um, a couple of kids in high school. So it's a really it's a really cool process. It's a little bit sleazy as well, or it certainly has been in years gone by. Um, there's a brilliant 30 for 30 documentary, which I think is on ESPN Player, who were the sponsor of this podcast. Um, what's it called, Sam? The Marcus Dupree one? What's the actual title of the documentary? The Best There Never Was. The Best That Never Was. A guy who we very nearly met last year, but was in Oklahoma when we'd arranged an interview with him, which was a shame. But that kind of takes you into the world of of certainly what recruiting was back in 20 years ago, and thankfully there are a lot more kind of restrictions put upon it now, although I imagine some of the underhand stuff still goes on. Yeah, if you've never read the book, there's a, a phenomenal book, which I'm trying to see on my bookshelf, and I know it's somewhere, but it's uh, it's by Willie Morris uh, about the recruiting of, of Marcus Dupree. Uh, it's called The Courting of Marcus Dupree. Um, it is a phenomenal read, essentially, about the machinations behind the scenes of uh, of recruiting to major colleges. Because Dupree was really the greatest running back in high school history um, and started off just with a, an insane clip uh, at Oklahoma. Um, and some of those practices don't go on today, but some of them, I think, probably still do. I mean, and uh, one of those guys that we talked about 
going to see last year was a, was a defensive end called King Makuta at Troop County who was, who was committed to Alabama. Um, and again, is going through the process of going to visit different teams. And <clears throat> even last night, and we'll get on to, to the Florida State debacle in a moment, but Florida State had the number one ranked defensive player on the sideline last night for the Virginia Tech game, which probably wasn't a good look for them given the beatdown that they got. But that happens week in and week out through the season, doesn't it? Recruits turn up to see games, to see the campus, to be, um, you know, won over, I suppose, because it's a, it, it's a, it's almost like a dating process, isn't it? It's like speed dating, really. You get a certain amount of visits to schools and uh, and on-campus visits. And, you know, when you're there, you, you, you want to be taken to the best places. You want to hang out with the cool people and you want to go to games and watch the team win. So it's very much, uh, it's a very interesting process. We digress a little bit. Ultimately, can Tom Herman survive this? I mean, he media media availability yesterday, he was citing of mice and men and urging his players to read the John Steinbeck book, which Lord alone knows how that will help them. I mean, uh, he can't survive the year at this clip, can he? I mean, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, I, I still think they would... His buyout must be absolutely enormous. So, I'd, And Texas, that's less of an issue than other programmes. But I think he will get... The beginning up to the beginning of next year, but I mean it depends because let's be honest, I wouldn't be surprised if there's more things come out of the woodwork in the whole Zach Smith situation. Um, so the problem the problem he's got is there will be people now who are gunning for him, and if there is a reason given to those people to fire him, then they'll take it. So. It's going to be a fascinating few months for Tom Herman. Not exactly an easy game for them this weekend either. They faced Tulsa, good quarterback in Luke Skipper under centre, and Shamari Brooks, the running back, who had 129 yards against Central Arkansas at the weekend. That's not a pushover for Texas, is it? And if they come in in the same sort of lackadaisical manner with which they took on Maryland, I mean, there could be a massive upset on the books. It's unlikely, but you just never know. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it would be end-of-time stuff if there was an upset. Um, but, I mean, the way... The Maryland game was interesting because they went behind early and then they, they rallied and you thought, well, they'll win now. And then they kind of just fell off the map again. And Maryland dominated after the after the delay. And I think that's the worst sign. And you could argue that the delay halted their momentum a little bit. But the flip side of that is, I, I mean, it's just when, when you've gone behind in a game, you're expected to win and then come back. To then give it back away is a, is a terrible sign. So, listen, I think everybody will be watching that game this weekend intrigued to see what 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 it looks like for texas let's leave texas and switch to the state of florida two big games sunday night and last night involving miami and florida state respectively and both teams were beaten pretty handily let's start with last night and just a dreadful start to the willie taggart era uh, for the seminoles they just didn't take they didn't take advantage of the atmosphere pre-game which was absolutely bouncing at dope campbell there was just a, a run of terrible play calling. You know, when they got DeAndre Francois, who looked terrific, I've got to say, looked terrific, uh, especially throwing the ball. And if you're looking, you're projecting NFL caliber quarterbacks, then, you know, he's certainly got that kind of, he's got the arm, he's got the, the, the mobility in the pocket, he's got the accuracy that you look for in an NFL quarterback. But, you know, calling run plays in the face of eight-man fronts with Cam Akers and Jack Patrick just going nowhere, inside the red zone calling running plays, just, just an awful look for Willie Taggart. I didn't think that I would be more frustrated by coaching performance than I was um, Michigan's, certainly in the first half, but this this more than topped it. I mean, it was 
If you could draw up the worst possible start for a head coach at a big programme, this was about it. I mean, they just played into... I mean, Bud Foster, the Virginia Tech defensive coordinator, is a legendary coordinator in his own right. Brilliant. I mean, I think he's been there for the best part of 25 years at this point as a defensive coordinator. So, he's great at what he does and... It's a young, but it's a young Virginia Tech defense. So a lot of people were intrigued to see what it looked like. And and frankly, I thought a lot of the time Florida State played into their hands. I mean, in the first half, I think Florida State outgained them by about 150 yards, and we're down 17-3. I mean, it's just it was awful. I mean, the play calling was was a joke. And on, on a multitude of levels, one the amount of times in the red zone they were just running the ball into stacked boxes and getting nowhere. And essentially going backwards when they were moving the ball. As soon as they got to the red zone, they went, they went in the opposite direction. And then I, I can't understand a running system in which a guy who got injured in the first game of last season is essentially the lead blocker on several plays. Like, I couldn't understand that either. It's a, Listen, Virginia, Virginia Tech, if, if their defence is as good as it looked last night, and it, the defence is pretty much always good, but there was a lot of young guys this year, so it was a question mark for one of the few times. Virginia Tech's a really good team, but they're a really good team who Florida State, at home, should be beaten. Yeah, I mean, just a lot of errors, weren't there? And it was For me, it was embarrassing. We've seen a lot of sloppy football this week, and you always do in week one. I mean... From big programs as well. I mean, that Washington Auburn game, which we'll get onto, was fascinating, but it was it was sloppy on both sides, and that's two kind of top ten programs. So you get that, but I, I just there's sloppy, and then there's what Florida State did, which was which was bad, and really the worst of, of what I thought was a, a very good performance from an outstanding quarterback, because I thought Francois looked really really good. And the other thing, Simon, is I, I don't really know what was going on with their with their blocking schemes. But for all that defence is really good, that there were unblocked guys seemingly on every other play. And I mean that that talks that talks to me about the protections being wrong and and yeah, I, I just thought it was a it was a comedy of errors for Willie Taggart and, and certainly a, an injudicious start to his tenure. Yeah, I mean Cole Minshaw, the starting guard, was missing and Landon Dickerson went out the, the right tackle went out of the game with some injury. And then Joanne Williams, the left tackle, and Derek Kelly, the left guard, both left for cert for portions of the game. So it didn't help. But nevertheless, I mean, you, you talk about the inexperience of that Virginia Tech defense. The linebackers had four starts between them in their career. But, and yet, you know, you take a guy like Khalil Ladler, the, the number nine, was making plays all over the field, both in the yeah. pass game and against the run. It, it looked like a very well-coached unit against a very badly-coached unit to me. I mean, that... It did, but Ladler was, Ladler was sort of jumping plays almost before they were, you know, in a yeah. sort of the way that you see Luke Keekley do on a Sunday. And Now, was that Ladler's phenomenal film study? And who knows? Or was it just really obvious play calling? Because, yeah. you know, I, I don't know. I mean, they only averaged 3.4 yards running, yet Cam Akers still had an 85-yard run in, in amongst that, which makes it even yeah. more ridiculous. So... Yeah, that was basically the only run and play that gained anything that wasn't called back for penalty. The one thing I would say is a positive for Florida State. I thought their defence in the second half was incredible. I mean, the second half was essentially, prior to that 85-yard run, uh, Florida State going three and out inside their own 10-yard line, and then the defence against outrageously good field position, holding Virginia Tech to, to zero points up until kind of the, the air fell out of the stadium when they... When they again failed on 
after the 85 yard run, they essentially failed to convert that into a touchdown. Final thing I'd say as well, another piece of terrible coaching from Willie Taggart is um, there was a spell where Florida State essentially scored a touchdown um, that the refs ruled down on the one-yard line. And instead of kind of giving it time for the replay officials to have a look at it, they rushed to the line, to the line of scrimmage, scrimmage yeah. commit, committed a full star penalty, and then at that point they can't review the play again. So that was a touchdown taken off the board, and ultimately they only got three points from the drive. So I get tempo, I get wanting to go with it, but I always, I always, the Patriots do this in the NFL quite a lot, and I hate it. I mean, I always think that on the one yard line, you're better off almost just taking a step back. People think you'll get a quick score, but it, it often actually works the opposite way and the offense ends up with a penalty. So I often think you should take a step back, let the replay officials do their thing, then plot your series. I mean, if you can't get in from the one yard line with three downs, then you shouldn't be in football. You're listening to the ESPN player Gridiron College Football Show. I'm Simon Clancy along with Gridiron Magazine editor Matt Sherry. Let's go from the panhandle in Texas down to, to towards the, the bottom portion of the state and the University of Miami, who who again lost to LSU and lost... It, was, it wasn't as close as the score, and the score wasn't that close, was it? I mean, they just seemed utterly unprepared for the Tigers, who defensively were very strong. But what was most disappointing from Miami, apart from the performance, I mean, Malik Razier was very... Very disappointing, as I'm sure we'll get to. But so much of that NFL-rated talent simply didn't show up. The safety, Jaquan Johnson, was disappointing. Amon Richards, who we talked about going up against Greedy Williams, totally shut down. Joe Jackson at defensive end, who people have talked about being a first-round pick. No bend, no burst, couldn't get around the edge. Shaquille Quarterman, I mean, LSU ran all over Shaquille Quarterman's you know, linebacking crew, up and down the field. I was just so disappointed with the Hurricanes. I just thought, you know, and the flip side, I thought LSU were, were terrific under, you know, the Ohio State transfer at quarterback. They ran the ball really well. Ed Ogeron just did a terrific job, I thought. It reminded me very much of Mark Richards at Georgia. Kind of, you know, Rick had a, had a, had a really good win-loss record at Georgia, but was essentially fired because he couldn't beat Alabama or couldn't win the big game, which is going to be a theme of this of this episode. And I mean, we saw that a little bit last year at the end of the season, but I said last week I thought Miami caught lightning in a bottle a bit, and this was a, this was, this was a big test early in the season, but a very winnable test. It was one of those where they could, they could put a statement win on the board, but... Frankly, a, a, a game that you would probably expect them to win based on last year, and they just didn't show up at all. And it was a worrying, it was a worrying sign for Mark Rich because this has kind of been the theme of his his career at this point. I mean, to be at Georgia as long as you did and not win it all is is not good enough. I mean, Georgia's basically the hotbed of talent in the US, and and this kind of, I, I don't know if you thought the same, Sam, but it had very much echoes of his Georgia tenure in terms of the team looking totally unprepared for a game and just being outdone by an opponent who, frankly, I don't think are the best coach team in, in college football by any stretch, but they were they were a lot more prepared for this game. And that was interesting because the commentators kept harping on about the fact that LSU in their practice didn't look well coached. I mean, I don't know if you noticed that, but they kept talking about how there were a lot of procedural issues in practice that week. And, and frankly... I'm not sure. I feel like thinking back, maybe 
Miami just made LSU look a little bit better than they are as well. But what's interesting about the offensive play calling and the, and, and the week that you just mentioned, I mean, I, I listened to Ed Orgeron's press conference beforehand and he, he promised this kind of spread on offense and a sort of 50-50 split of run pass. But actually, it looked a lot more like what you've come to expect from the Tigers over the years. You know, tight formations, plenty of runs, the occasional play action passing, not a great deal of innovation. And yet it led to points. They were 33-3 up at one point. You know, with Joe Burrow, the Ohio State transfer, just doing enough, making a couple of big throws, but generally just doing enough, managing the game. And that's that's kind of what they needed, wasn't it? They just kind of needed somebody to come in because that defense is really, really good. I, lo- I love I love watching that defense. I, lo- I love watching... There's some college football teams where certain units... And Virginia Tech were like this last night. They've got athletes and they just swarm around the ball and it's great to watch. And LSU epitomised that. I mean, there is always talent on LSU. Any first-year head coach, and Ogeron's not that, but could take over LSU and immediately have success because there is simply always talent on that team. And and we saw it again. And and I, I, re, I was really impressed by Joe Burrow. We said last week we thought he was essentially going to be the guy we were watching. They clearly held him back a little bit. I don't think they wanted to pass the ball too much against a very good Miami defence. They wanted to control the ball and do everything you said. But I just thought there were a few times on third down when a player needed to be made, he, he, he made a really good throw, often in the face of pressure. So I, I thought that was a, an impressive debut in a pretty tough spot. We talk about NFL players, just one of those NFL players on that defence. We've touched upon Williams, the cornerback, but but Devin White, the, the, the sort of rover linebacker, had a terrific game. The number 40, if you're watching it, if you watch LSU this weekend, he was everywhere, wasn't he? In the, kind of the, in the sort of display that makes you think, OK, that's a nailed on first round pick. Instincts, you'd like him to be a, bit, a, little, bit, a little bit better, a little bit half a second better in terms of his instinctive read and react, but in terms of just a player who's everywhere, who makes tackles, who can run like the wind, he's a really good player, isn't he? He he was the prototypical modern linebacker, isn't he? That's that's the thing. He's just so perfect for the modern game. And, and again, the kind of player that is just great to watch. A strong start for the SEC this weekend. They went 13-1, and only Tennessee lost. Big wins, especially, as we mentioned, for LSU, also for Auburn, which we'll get to. But let's talk about quarterbacks and let's stay in the SEC. Alabama eased their way past Louisville with a, a, a fairly stunning performance from Tua Tungavailoa, who started at quarterback. Jalen Hurts came in and played some uh, some possessions, but this is Tua's team moving forwards, and he was mightily impressive, wasn't he? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are essentially saying that you can you can hand Alabama the national championship now. I mean, it's disappointing. It is, it's disappointing it for is. teams to think that. Not only are the best team in the nation, but now they've got the best quarterback in the nation as well. That must be fairly damning for 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 everybody else. It, it, yeah, it, it's what fascinates me is is I think it's going to be such a different Alabama team now because I must admit I do think Tua is going to be turnover prone. I mean, it, the, the, there were a couple of players. Saturday night was one of those games where essentially everything he tried turned to gold, and that won't always happen. Especially that first touchdown was insane, but. So I do think that they'll turn the ball over more than they usually do. I think their defence, despite giving up almost no points, looked a little bit suspect. I know you thought the same, Simon, when we discussed it. So I think it's going to be a different Alabama team, but they, they in 10 years, have not had a quarterback anything close to how talented this guy is. I mean, I, I'm already excited to see him play next week. He was he was spectacular, wasn't he? Oh, he I mean, this was, this was a more powerful version of Steve Young on the field of a college football game. It was just... 
fabulous to watch. I mean, the, the throw he made where he sort of was almost tackled and sort of bent over and then all of a sudden just throws his laser into the corner of the end zone was astonishing. But I was more impressed with the Jerry Judy touchdown in the second half, the, just the, the, the long touchdown that he had that was just dropped absolutely perfectly in stride, looked off the safety and then just almost as if he was, you know, chucking a sponge into a bucket at a, you know, at the Texas State Fair. It was just a phenomenal throw. But he just... And, and I, wonder, I do wonder how much of an impact he has on other teams' quarterback decisions. Well, we're going to get to that we... in a sec, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Clemson in particular, I think, have to respond. Well, let's go there. I mean, Trevor Lawrence didn't start, Kelly Bryant did, and, and played, you know, absolutely fine against Furman. He's a good college quarterback, but Lawrence came in and... He threw three touchdowns, but he also made two other throws, including a sort of 18-yard out route that was just a a laser, a a proper NFL throw. Then made one deep throw that was caught in stride and would have been a touchdown if the receiver hadn't fallen down. And and already the calls are coming from from Clemson fans that Lawrence needs to start, in part because they want him to keep up with what's happening at Alabama. How long do you feel like the Kelly Bryant era will continue for? Um, half a quarter of the next game if Brian doesn't score a touchdown on the first drive. They're playing Texas, they're playing Texas A&M, so we'll talk about yeah. that. But, but, you know, they've got Texas A&M, then they're at Georgia Southern, then they're at Georgia Tech, Syracuse, Wake Forest, NC State. I mean, it's, it's not a difficult schedule. Then they play Florida State, who, you know, who may have got them. I mean, they don't really have a, they don't really have a tough game. We'll see. I mean, you know, their schedule is cupcake. It's Furman, yeah. Texas A&M, Georgia Southern, Georgia Tech, which could be a tough game, but only because of Georgia, the way Georgia Tech, you know, their offensive scheme. Syracuse unranked, Wake Forest unranked, NC State unranked, Florida State, who you'd imagine will get their feet back under them. Louisville, who didn't look like they could, you know, they would pose a threat. Boston College, Duke, and South Carolina before you get to the ACC championship game. I mean, the flip side of that is that they might not have played anybody of any note before they get A into a championship game and then B into a playoff where they're suddenly facing a, a massive step up. But the other flip side is they really can't afford to lose a game. Oh, absolutely! But it's not like there's not a game there where you wouldn't think. I tell you what, let's let's blood Trevor because do you know what I mean? It's not like there's no game there you'd be afraid to put Lawrence in and, and announce him as the starter because you know let's just say he starts against Georgia Southern. That gives him a week to prepare for Georgia Tech. Do you see what I'm yeah. saying? It's not. I know, mean, it's, I, I it's can cupcakes see all the way to, I can see it coming to a head this week because I I, I just think. I would expect Texas A&M to be, to be well-coached enough to, to make that game tight early on. And I think if that happens, then I think that they'll quickly turn to Lawrence. There was, there was two guys, so we've mentioned Justin Fields and Trevor Lawrence on this pod. Justin Fields essentially just came in at the point when it was game over for Georgia. And you could tell, you could tell there was a clear hierarchy between Jake Fromm and Justin Fields, I thought, in week one. I mean, other than Brian taking the first series, there was no hierarchy between him and Lawrence in this game. I mean, they threw as many passes as each other. And I think that was telling. I think that was telling in terms of how much action they wanted Trevor Lawrence to have. And he's going to be the starter come the playoff. I mean, one way or another, if I look at it, I would think that if I was setting the roadmap out, I would see how it goes this week because I think this is the one challenging game in the next four or five. But you'd want him starting by the time the Florida State game game comes because for all we've criticised Florida State's performance last night there's a lot of talent on the team they've got a very good quarterback themselves I think the game's in Tallahassee if I remember rightly so 
So yeah, I mean, you'd want him starting, and you'd want him comfortable by that game, and, and every sign suggests that he will be because he he played a lot in this first game. There's a you know there's a a big challenge for him if playing this week against Texas A&M, isn't there? You know, in front of a hundred thousand fans on the road is is a lot more different than uh, you know the challenge that playing at home against Furman provided, does isn't it? You know, in terms of just the scenario, the surroundings, the twelfth man at the stadium. The noise, the the expectation, Jimbo Fisher on the other sideline. That's a different feeling for a Trevor Lawrence than it was against the Paladins of uh, of Furman on on Saturday. And maybe that's the reason he played so much on Saturday because they know they can see that on the horizon already, and they want to they wanted to get his feet wet to a significant degree before before this week. Another young quarterback who did very well this weekend, true freshman Sam Hartman of Wake Forest, who sort of shined in their in their game over um, in their game over Tulane. An interesting performance, three hundred yards passing. Wake look a good side with with him at quarterback. He looked really really impressive, didn't he? Yeah, he did. And, and Tulane are a, are a program that seemed to be on the rise after after last year. So. Um, yeah, I mean, there were. I thought there were a lot of teams this week who, who really slip under the radar. I think Northwestern against Purdue was a really good win, and and I think there are a lot of teams who essentially catapulted themselves into the conversation to be in and around the the ranking areas. So, and and I think Wake Forest are one of those teams. Mentally tired. All the coaches talk about talk about his mental toughness, Hartman, and you know this kind of. Uh, he's had quite a lot to go through, I think, as a teenager over his fairly young life, but um, including the death of his brother and uh, you know all sorts of things. But um, like you say, a very interesting time for Wake Forest in a, in what doesn't look like the strongest of conferences, and they could actually you know potentially make a little bit of noise. Some, some decent players on on defense as well. One other young quarterback to talk about because I want to get onto the West Coast, is JT Daniels at USC. Solid start for him, for the true freshman, who who didn't seem to miss a beat from from Sam Darnold in, in many respects. And, and, and frankly, they needed a solid performance from him, because I think I think they gave up about 300 rushing yards on, on defence, which is ridiculous. I mean, it's not like, it's not like um, UNLV have this incredible Georgia Tech-like rushing attack. I mean, I, I didn't see... Anything in that game other than the highlights of Daniels, but that's an astonishing. I mean, they play Stanford this week, and Bryce Love had a really bad week one, but he could he could catapult himself firmly back into the Heisman campaign if that's any kind of indication of the the run defense we're going to get from USC this year because that wasn't impressive at all. It wasn't, and Clay Helton's got to be concerned about that, hasn't he? I mean, that has to be a that has to be a a big worry for him. Yeah, undoubtedly, and I mean this is a huge year for Clay Helton because he's another of those Ed Orgeron type coaches who's at a a power program without being a a blue chip power coach. You know these these guys who have who exude the personality of the program that they're in, and 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 I feel like both of those guys are almost in a similar spot where because they're not called Nick Saban or even if when there was rumours of John Gruden going to Tennessee, you know because they don't have that name recognition. They're immediately kind of under pressure, and this this is a big year for him. Admittedly, they've got a, a true freshman at quarterback, so that probably buys them a little bit of time. But I think people want to see a USC team that is competitive on both sides of the ball, and I think that I think they're in big trouble this week against Stanford. I suppose the flip side to that rushing 
those rushing statistics of 300 yards, 308 yards rushing they gave up at seven and a half yards a carry. 107 of those came on two plays, a fake reverse, which essentially bypassed everybody, and the other was a fake punt, which didn't involve the starting defense at all. Um, and then Armani Rogers, the, the the mobile, the UNLV's mobile quarterback, made a lot of plays, you know, breaking as the pocket broke down, then got outside of contain and, and made yards that way. So I think there's a, I definitely think there's a flip side, a sort of caveat to, to that performance. But as we've touched upon, you know, Bryce Love coming into town, 18 of 29 in his opening game, he will be looking to significantly step up um, his level of performance after after a very, very disappointing first week. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the exciting part for Stanford is San Diego State are a team I think beat them last year, who were a, who were a, a decent programme in their own right. And to win that game against a team who's essentially shut down your ace card is, is an exciting time. And I mean, a lot of people now are talking about whether the Pac-12 can have a playoff representative um, because Washington lost to Auburn, as we'll get into more depth on in a second. But I think Stanford are, are always a good programme. David Shaw's a great coach. And, and they're another team who, admittedly, there's no pressure on David Shaw because winning it all at Stanford is kind of impossible given that they can only select from about 0.5% of America in terms of recruits but they're always a really well coached program and there's never a year where I would be surprised to see Stanford maybe get themselves in and around that top four area. Speaking of West Coast teams notably from Los Angeles a fairly inauspicious start to the Chip Kelly era at UCLA this weekend with Oklahoma to come in a few days time. Yeah I mean I think what we're seeing is is this is a full rebuild, the Chip Kelly. I mean, they must have started more true freshmen than, than any other team. 11, I think. On Saturday. 11 so, true yeah, freshmen. I mean, that's, that's an insane number. And Wilton Spate, the guy from Michigan last year who we selected a quarterback, went out in the second quarter. So there were mitigating circumstances. I do believe in Chip Kelly. The only thing I would say is... When he first came along, he essentially was the visionary behind the super up-tempo offense that that a lot of colleges now run. And what that means is college defenses are completely ready for it. So whereas Kelly, early in his career, could essentially take lesser talented guys and make them into a really competitive top 10 team because the system he was running is so unique, those days are now gone. We've got a million programs in college football running it. Defences are used to playing against it, which I think is the most important thing. Now, I'm very fascinated to see whether in stage three of his career, Chip Kelly can adjust again. Innovation is getting harder and harder in this era because of the access to information. And I think it's these guys like Kelly, who maybe would have had 30 years of innovative genius in, in the past, I think it's harder for them to keep kind of finding new spots. So... I'm really interested to see how it goes for Chip Kelly, but I'll be judging it in two years' time, given how young the team is. Yeah, I'm very much split on on Kelly as to whether or not he's the genius that everybody makes out. I think it's interesting that the you know in terms of that fast break offense that people were expecting to to transfer from Oregon, it was much more of a kind of a, a steady jog offense. Really, I mean, most of the snaps were sort of twenty five to thirty seconds in in between. You know, after the the end of the play had finished, and in Kelly's last season at Oregon. It, the Ducks ran 82.3 plays per game against Cincinnati in, uh, at the weekend. They only ran 68 plays, which is a fairly significant drop for a team that's expected to play on the front foot, play fast break all the time. 
Yeah, and and but do you wonder what I wonder with that is is it one he doesn't have experienced enough guys versed in the system yet. I mean, I think his last year at Oregon he had Mariota at quarterback, so he clearly had a a ridiculous talent at quarterback. Or is it two? Does Chip Kelly think that the super fast system is no longer the way to go? And is it is adjusting? I mean, and that's what I'm interested to find out. Really, is it going to be different? Because I mean, he's essentially spent his twelve months out of coaching, visiting every coach that he respects for long periods of time. I mean, he's he spent time with Kevin Sumlin, Bill Belichick. You know, he's got a lot of friends in coaching, and this is a guy who's shown a desire to learn all the time, new information. So. I'm just fascinated to see if it looks any different, really. Did you see Mike Leach's uh, funky? I did. The big gulp, as he called it. He said he'd been working with. Um, said he'd been working with uh, a former, a former uh, Wazoo grad who now worked for one of the big sort of engineering companies. Um, essentially, if you didn't see it, uh, everybody lined up to the short side of the field. Offensive line was as it normally would be. There were three wide receivers to the left of the formation, a quarterback and a running back. But then the guy in the slot on the right-hand side of the formation had the ball. And he snapped... I'm so, I'm so glad you've explained this. He, me he snapped the ball back to the... Well, I mean, there were essentially... Yeah, yeah to the up-back, diagonally. Could have snapped it to the quarterback as well. But essentially, it was a wildcat play, but with the ball being snapped by the slot receiver. And they ran it back-to-back, two plays. And then afterwards, he was asked about it. He said, yeah, it's called the big gulp. I've got all these kind of great, funky things I'm going to pull out through the rest of the season. Then very far, I don't know if anybody's seen it, but he was then asked a question about what it was like playing uh, at War Memorial Stadium, where Wyoming play at altitude. It's the highest, uh, in terms of altitude, it's the highest stadium in uh, Division One college football. Um, in Laramie and he was he was asked about the question and all of a sudden he went into this sort of 90 second kind of uh diatribe about jackrabbits and jackalopes which is a jackalope is a kind of mythical American sort of deer with rabbit-like ears he it was just a he's such a great character isn't he he's such a he's like a, America doesn't do national treasures but if they did Mike Leach would be front and center wouldn't he? he'd be kind of Judy Dench or Claire Balding yeah, I mean, Washington State have essentially become my de facto second team because I love Mike Leach so much. Um, for those who don't know, he, he had a he had a long career at Texas Tech where he essentially pioneered parts of the air raid offense, and and he's taken that to Washington State and actually done a really good job at Washington State. I mean, they were an absolute shambles when he took over, and they've had maybe three or three winning seasons on the spin now. And this was this was a great win for Washington State. I mean, they were favoured to beat Wyoming, but they were also in that uncomfortable position of being the trendy upset pick to get beat. And they were behind at the point when he started running the funky plays. Um, but they ended up winning by, I think, about 12 points. So it was it was a good win. And, and I would urge people to, if, if you're just getting into college football and you want to watch essentially what college football is all about, watch Washington State. Let's look, and, and, and enjoy Mike Leach's, Leach's press conference. Yeah, well. let's look at two teams that fell badly: Michigan and Washington. Washington, well, I mean, both of them really can't win the big one. Jim Harbaugh cannot get across the line against a top twenty-five team, and Washington. The game was there for the winning, and they just conspired to lose it. And we talked last week on the podcast about how Auburn's front seven could be dominant, and they were. And in the crunch time at the end of the game, they were able to back-to-back sacks of Jake Browning to essentially run out the clock. But Michigan looked dreadful on offense, didn't they? Dreadful. I mean, 
24-17 was the most flattering scoreline of the week in, in the favour of Michigan because this was an absolute shambles in many ways. I mean, it was a shambles in which there were many missed opportunities. I mean, if you wanted to look at it from a positive light, I could pick out three players that if they went the other way, that probably should have gone the other way, Michigan would have won. However... That ignores the fact that one, the players happened, and two, the rest of the game was an absolute shambles. And I mean, Pep Hamilton, I, I don't want to pin all the blame on Jim Harbour because Pep Hamilton now is con continuously a shambles. He might be the most overrated coach in any level of football. This is a guy who was dreadful at the Colts when he was the offensive coordinator. Essentially, they regressed every year that he was there. And it's just been awful at Michigan. I mean... The Michigan offense genuinely just looks, it, it, it looks like analog in the digital age to use the classic cliche. I mean, it, and, and it's more frustrating when you can see a guy, a quarterback who, Shea Patterson wasn't amazing, but I think a lot of that was a product of how he was being asked to play. You've now essentially got a, an exciting quarterback who you essentially need to take the reins off and let him go. And I think it's hard for Michigan to do that because they're so trusting in their defense, but it only gives you one way to win the game if you're so limited with what you do with him because all that needs to happen, which is what happens in this game, is the opposing offense has a really good scripted couple of first drives. It's 14 nothing, and then you're facing an uphill battle and that's exactly what happened in this game. And, and there were many areas where it was a debacle. This was a, this was a team prepared and coached well against a team that wasn't, unfortunately. Unfortunately for Michigan... Then things spiraled a little bit out of control in the last sort of 24 hours. Braylon Edwards, the former Michigan receiver, turned NFL receiver, fourth overall pick by the Cleveland Browns uh, in the Aaron Rodgers draft, um, essentially tweeted that um, he called out Cesar Ruiz, the center, called him weak, said that Shea Patterson, the quarterback, was scared, and then called the Michigan program trash. Uh, Harbour then, you know, and, and he did this under the auspices of working for the Big Ten Network, which he now does. Harbour came out yesterday in his media availability, said that was that none of that was true. It was not factual. Nobody in the program thinks anything about any player on on the team, let alone the two players that he describes. Said that it was disappointing that a member of the Big Ten Network would attack the character of the players and of the school. Um, it's it's ugly, isn't it? And and it doesn't help. Harbaugh's position either does it I mean he can't control what Braylon Edwards tweets but for he's on the hot seat already a little bit and now he's, yeah, he's getting I mean, embroiled in this sort of pseudo social media row with a former with an alumni it's not a good look no it's not I mean Braylon Edwards was a little bit out of order I think in what he said he's he's, he's been he's been suspended by the Big Ten Network and rightly so but it, it kind of sums up the feeling in Ann Arbor I mean it's fascinating this Jim Harbaugh tenure because this is a great coach, and I mean, his record proves that, and he was a great coach up until three quarters of the way through year two in Michigan, when they were 9-0, and they lost a tight game on the road at Iowa, and then had the bad spot against Ohio State, but since that point, I think he's 9-9 nine and nine in his last 18 games, and and I mean, this this record of not winning big games on the road stays with him, I mean, I essentially said last week that this was house money for Michigan, and it kind of was, because... They've still got the whole Big Ten slate ahead of them and at the end of the season, people aren't going to remember the particulars of this game. They're going to look at the score and say, well, you lost by seven to Notre Dame. You had the ball left with two minutes left with a chance to go and tie the game. It's not a terrible loss, particularly in week one. But 
the the worry for me is that the signs are there that this isn't going to be a good season. The offensive line was a shambles, and it was last year. Ed Warner, who we mentioned, has come in a great, touted offensive line coach who's done great jobs with programs like Ohio State. Everybody thought he was going to simplify the the protections and it was going to change everything. It never at all. And and I think now we need to start looking at whether this offense is is really fit for modern college football. Zero and seventeen on the road against ranked opponents. One and six against rivals. And that one win was that nine three win over Michigan State. I mean, are Michigan any better than Iowa? At this point, well, we'll find out this season, and I mean, I think there's, I think they're still loaded. I mean, the defense is really talented. I do think Patterson looked looked good in spots. I mean, I, I just don't think he was put in the position to succeed. I like to think that the penultimate drive, where they let him go a little bit, would encourage them to do that more. But maybe the next drive, where they let him go a little bit, and he was and he fumbled the ball, and we saw some of the turnover issues that certainly you pointed out, Simon. Um, but they still got. It's going, to be, it's going to be a fascinating few weeks. They've got they've got a fairly easy schedule for a few weeks to try and pull it together. But but then Penn State, bad, Michigan State, Wisconsin, Ohio State. I mean, it could get ugly for Harbaugh. It could, yeah. But by the same account, it could get. You know, they'll look at it and think, well, we've still got a chance to really put ourselves in the national picture if we win those games. If I was a betting man right now, I would say that they don't win those games, though. So ugly is certainly. The way I would go if I had to predict it. What about Washington and Chris Peterson? I mean, Peterson came out and praised Auburn's defence, which was terrific. But are Washington out of the national championship picture now? Um, I thought so. But looking at what people are saying, I'm not sure there will be. Because I think people would point to, unbeaten from here on in, I think they'd point to enough wins against the likes of USC. And they travelled across the country to SEC Heartland on the road, they lost by less than a touchdown. Against, yeah, I mean it wasn't it wasn't top similar, similar to what I've just said about Michigan. If at the end of the season they've turned the year around, people aren't going to look at a fifteen, what was it, nineteen sixteen loss to to um, to a good Auburn team and say, oh well, that's that's a reason that you shouldn't be in. I mean, at the end of the day, they were competitive in the game. And they could quite easily have won it. It was just a weird game of two good teams who essentially just kept handing it back to the other. I mean, Auburn dominated the second half and were only up by single points. Michigan, uh, Washington completely dominated the second half and essentially barely ever led in the game. I mean, there were numerous drives where they missed field goals. They had players that took them out of field goal range. So it was it was a, it wasn't the best game, but it was a fascinating one. Again, their schedule, North Dakota this weekend, Utah. Arizona State could be an interesting game. We'll get to Arizona State in a moment. BYU, UCLA, who we've talked about. Oregon, you're going to want to put a pasting on Oregon just, just because that will help with the with the voters. Colorado, Cal. The big game November the third against Stanford. That could be, you know, that could be for all the you know, for all the pieces of the pie, as it were, and could get them right back into the into the running ahead of Washington State and then the Pac-12 championship, depending on what happens elsewhere, they the, there's a chance. It's a slim one, I think. I really do think it's a slim one, but there's a chance, isn't there? I think I think if they go unbeaten, they'll get voted in, and and I'll disagree with it. I think, but they they will. So they've they've still got a chance. But I mean, that's easier said than done. I mean, a, a nine a nine game schedule against your own conference is never easy for any team. So that. They're one loss away from being out, and if you had to bet, you would say they will probably lose another game from here on out. 
You are listening to the ESPN Player Gridiron College Football Show with me, Simon Clancy, and Gridiron Magazine editor Matt Sherry. That's kind of it for for um, looking back at last week. Let's kick ahead to what's happening this weekend. No major games on the slate, and we'll look at the Heisman Trophy as well before we go off in, in, in 10 or 15 minutes. No major games on the slate this weekend, but things that sort of stand out for me, Mississippi State against Kansas State. First game for Nick, Nick Fitzgerald. We look at projecting players to the next level in part on this podcast. Fitzgerald has some fans at the NFL level. We saw him person, in person from the sidelines last year, almost beat Alabama. Severely broken ankle in the bowl game, was suspended for week one, but he has talent, doesn't he, Nick Fitzgerald? And it should be an interesting, it should be interesting to see him back on the field and see, how, see where he is mentally, but also see where he is physically. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the suspension, which I'm not really sure what it was for, I've not that news... I knew he'd been suspended, but I'd, when he when they initially broke it, it was just a bye. Yeah, I don't think it's come I'm not out. Sure if any more's come out, but that's not a good look. So I think all eyes are on him this week, and it'll be an interesting week to watch him for that reason because I think he'll want to put in a big performance. People were starting to talk about him as a as an NFL guy before the season, so a, a big a big week for Nick Fitzgerald, really. Absolutely, Kayarton Thompson started for Mississippi State and played well. They won. Georgia-South Carolina is a very good, a very interesting SEC game. The Gamecocks are always dangerous, especially with Jake Bentley, at quarterback. Another another pass with the NFL potential and a very experienced offense that actually could, could test a young Georgia defense. Yeah, very much so. I mean, this is Georgia's, on the subject of cupcake schedules, Georgia's might be the, the kind of top tier of that. But this is one of the games that you look at and think, Early in the season, there is an opportunity there. South Carolina ended last season very well with a New Year's Six Bowl win over Michigan. They want to know, as Georgia are. So, yeah, this is going to be... A, I think this is... If you're going to pick upset alert game, I don't think it will be an upset, but one where you watch it in the hope that certainly it could get interesting. This is this is the one this week. I have an upset alert game, which I'll get to. I do as well, a different a one. Clemson, Texas a and we've talked about. Just a very quick word on A&M. A, a, a good start for Jimbo Fisher, but they're going to need a Johnny Manziel type of game from Kellen Mond if they're going to if they're going to beat Clemson, aren't they? Yeah, I mean a great start. I know it was limited opposition, but I think they set a yardage record in in the, in an offensive yard, which is a lovely start for Jimbo. And I I just think they need to be competitive in this game. I think it will be a great look for Jimbo after Week One and that contract that he got if they can essentially take a Clemson team who, along with Alabama, I think. Uh, a head and shoulders above the rest into the into the fourth quarter, I think, would be a good day for, for Texas. The most intriguing game between ranked teams we've touched upon a little bit, USC-Stanford, but it's, it, 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 we should reiterate, Bryce Love needs a big game, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, when we talk about Heisman moments, uh, they often come in big games, and regardless of whether USC's run defence is as bad as it looked in week one, at the end of the season, if people look at... Bryce Love and he's run for 200 yards against USC. They'll just think 200 yards against USC. So if the Heisman campaign is going to take off and not essentially stop before it's even out of the gate, this is a this is a week where Bryce Love needs to shine. So my upset special of the week is is Michigan State travelling to play Arizona State. Herm Edwards' side, big win on on opening weekend. Michigan State limped past Utah State and and were down late in that game. And could have lost. It was fairly stunning for Mark D'Antonio. Uh, Arizona, uh, a very interesting team, interesting offense, led by a, by potentially the first wide receiver that could come off the board in in next next year's draft, uh, and Keel Harry. 
What do you think about that? Do you think that will we see the same Michigan State team in? Because if we do, they could be in big trouble. I think they have a habit, don't the Michigan State, of starting seasons slowly. So, absolutely they could. I mean, I was stunned. I, I thought Arizona State might be, if not upset alert, I certainly thought that they would uh, have the spread covered against them. And that never happened. I mean, it was a great start for, for Herm Edwards, who's essentially been a laughing stock of the off-season. Um, so, it, I tell you what, if Herm Edwards can go and beat Michigan State, that would really shut a lot of people up, wouldn't it? So, that would be... I think they've got every chance. I mean, Michigan State were... I mean, we can talk about Michigan being unimpressive. But Michigan State and Penn State were easily more unimpressive given the, the calibre of opposition last week. So, they've got a lot to prove. And, and that quickly brings me on. I think Pitt against Penn State is another potential upset alert. Because Pitt, Pitt, Pitt always seemed to be a team who essentially can beat a big gun. I mean, I think they beat Miami last season when Miami were ranked in the top four. So that could be another game that Pitt are no pushovers. So that could be another interesting upset alert game. Nice. But I mean, going back to the Michigan State game for just one sec, Brian Lewerke, the, the Michigan State quarterback, is going to need, he played well in that win. And again, another NFL quarterback with potential first round possibilities. He's going to need a, a similar start, style of game, isn't he, in terms of if they're going to if they're going to avoid that defeat against Arizona State because that the atmosphere there will be bouncing when and Arizona State I think nine sacks only gave up two yards rushing in the um in the win in in week one that's they're, they're not to be they're not to be messed with absolutely not and that's another that's another one of those stadiums where the atmosphere can quickly get on top of you there that's a really kind of lively college town so the fan base will be really good I, on on um the Michigan State quarterback. I thought in bad weeks for for Michigan State and Penn State, their two quarterbacks came out of it and and kind of led them down the field at the end of the game when they needed to. So I think both of those guys, Trace McSorley of Penn State as well, came out of week one with a with a decent amount of credit. Let's let's have a look at the Heisman list in in part because it allows us to talk about a couple of quarterbacks that we ordinarily would have talked about elsewhere. We we both talked about Trevor Lawrence as being our sort of Heisman guy. I think at this point. Tunga Vailoa probably jumps to the top of the class. Possibly. I mean, I'm putting Kyler Murray at the top of the class at this point. I mean, I, he was my kind of outsider pick, and, and I thought he was incredible. I mean, a lot of people thought FAU would play Oklahoma Colors, and we haven't spoke about Oklahoma yet. I thought, actually, they might have been the most impressive team in Week 1. That that looked like classic trap game, and they're absolutely... I mean, they had the, the backups in at midway through the second quarter and we're up 42 to nothing. So they, they ran up 63 it, points, didn't they? I mean, yeah, yeah it, and Kyler Murray, I mean, he was incredible. This guy can really throw it as well, by the way. He can sling it, he's accurate. He made some incredible throws into windows that were tiny. I mean, if this guy was bigger, he might be an NFL prospect himself. He was, it was so, so impressive. He was the ninth overall pick in the, in the Major League Baseball draft and that, that's pretty much where his future will lie. In the uh, in the column, the the kind of weekend review column that you can read on the Gridiron website, I went with Tunga Vailoa at one. Will Greer of West Virginia, who had a terrific, just a terrific game, twenty five of thirty four, four hundred twenty nine yards, five touchdowns. Dwayne Haskins, the Ohio State quarterback, who set a record for for the most yards and touchdowns ever by a Buckeye quarterback, making his first start, five touchdowns again, twenty two of thirty for three hundred thirteen yards as as Ohio State ran up what, 77 points in that opening game, which, you know, uh, urban who kind of thing. Uh, I kept Trevor Lawrence at four. And then Jonathan Taylor of Wisconsin, the running back, who had a very solid debut, 
128 some odd yards. Um, Mackenzie Milton, I was very impressed with in his first yeah. game. Uh, I thought Jake Fromm played well. I thought uh, the kid at, uh, at Auburn played very well, especially in the first quarter, just kind of calming everything yeah, down. Jarrett Stidham yeah. played very well. Um, and yeah, you mentioned um, the guy that you mentioned there as well. Very, very impressive. Justin Herbert as well at Oregon. Um, didn't throw many, but I think he, I think he only threw 10 passes, five of which went for touchdowns, um, which is phenomenal, (laughs) which is phenomenal. But um, yeah, a lot of good performances, a lot of interesting freshman performances as well. I don't know if you saw, um, I don't know if you saw Rondell Moore of Purdue. He had 313 all-purpose yards against a really good Northwestern side. And this kind of ridiculous 76-yard run that kind of made you think a little bit of that sort of Ted Ginn era Ohio State. He was a true freshman who joined Purdue after decommitting from where did we start? Um, Texas. We started at Texas and we finished at Texas, who lost Rondell Moore, who looks like a, a superstar in the making. He decommitted from Tom Herman's outfit and went to Purdue. And that could be one of the reasons why Texas is 0-1 and Tom Herman is firmly on the hot seat. I know which coach I'd take out of Texas and Purdue as well. Me too. Jeff Brown's one of the rising stars in college football. Absolutely, absolutely. That's all from us this week. Don't forget, you can sign up for a monthly or annual pass to get ESPN players extensive coverage of college football, which includes more than 700 games this season, live and on demand, plus three channels simulcast direct from the US, including ESPNU, the SEC Network and the Longhorn Network. Access to a range of great documentaries from the ESPN Films catalogue, which we talked about earlier on, but also includes things like Roll Tide, War Eagle, Elway to Marino, Catholics v Convicts, part of that 30 for 30 lineup and if that wasn't enough when you sign up you get a seven day free trial we should be back next and also i've got one more thing to say on that we are currently running a competition at gridiron-magazine.com for a free subscription so enter that and you might not even need to need to pay you get a year's free subscription there you go what more could you want we should be back next week to review week two look ahead to week three we'll um we'll sort of have a newfangled heisman list where we'll try and make out that we know what we're talking about I hope you've enjoyed it. We shall be back next week. Have a great week. See ya. The situation in the Pacific is worse than reported. The Japanese are planning something big. What's the target? Midway. From the director of Independence Day. A couple dozen planes. It's all Japanese fleet. We got the order to launch. Discover the incredible true story. Today we're going to be underdogs. Of the World War II battle. Good luck, boys. Fire! Midway. Download and keep now.